And in the same building, the United Nations, part of the United Nations, they have these big programs to inoculate you against supposedly every known disease. And that was a mandate that came out of the United Nations before it was the United Nations. It was called the League of Nations. In 1917 or 18, they came out with a mandate to eradicate all known diseases across the planet. At least that's what they told the public. But when you saw who backed them and the big foundations that backed them, they all belonged to the Eugenics Society. Nothing new about this, except the points of view I'm going to put across to you after this break. Killed off 
thousands of people. And then you really, really wonder if they have a department, as I say, at the United Nations to do with population reduction. And at the same building and the same company, organization, they have a department for making mandatory vaccines the way of the world. Would you really trust them? Why should you trust them? This Canadian ad for a little spiel on the news for Gardasil said that some patients, some girls might go into anaphylactic shock. So don't worry about it. They have the antidote for that. Now, and she says, don't worry about it. If you go into anaphylactic shock, you can have a coronary arrest, myocardial infarction, you blow a hole through your heart, or you're going to get a stroke. A blood vessel can pop in your brain or be paralyzed, but don't worry about it. But she made it sound so light, you see. Oh, we have the antidote for that if it happens. And this is how all this stuff is pushed. By giving you partial truths, but not the rest of the story. That's how the whole world is run, in fact. That's how all things are presented to us. Here's an article from Britain on the flu vaccine. And I've talked about this before. It's from the Mail Online, August 29, 2008. Flu jab that cost £115 million a year, in double that for dollars, does not cut death rate in the elderly by Jenny Hope. Having it, now listen to the double speak, it, it goes back and forth like a, a ball in a tennis court. Having a flu jab does not cut the death rate amongst the elderly, claim researchers. They say vaccination has a virtually non-existent effect on the risk of dying prematurely, and the previous studies have exaggerated the apparent benefits. So there's a report that's come out with, again, a whole bunch of experts, you know, the experts that deal with this stuff. And, he, and of course, it gets retaliation immediately from those who are pushing it, because they get little backhanders, not, not so little sometimes, to push it. A study of 700 pensioners suffering pneumonia, a complication of flu, suggested those who had taken the jab were indeed less likely to die than those who were unvaccinated. But in closer analysis, it showed that those who were vaccinated were healthier. This <laughs> is a big difference to start with, and more likely to look after themselves in the first place, which means they were less at risk of dying from flu-related complications. But they also found out that they came from a higher socioeconomic class and were better fed, etc. You see? So by omission of other facts, you can be left with a false conclusion. And for years now, the main health authorities have been parroting a slogan that taking the flu shot is going to save 70 to 80% of the people from getting the flu. Now, they have no statistics to back that up. It's just a slogan. The slogans stick once they're parted often enough. So it says here, researchers from the University of Alberta found 12% of patients died after a hospital stay of eight days on average. Those who have been vaccinated were half as likely to die as un unvaccinated patients. But then they found out that the patient's clinical records and factors, including age, sex, smoking, frailty, and socioeconomic status, they hadn't taken that into consideration when they did they got a completely different picture. Because those who were dying were less well-fed, they were already unhealthy, and so on, and so on, and so on. And their age as well, it was factored into it. 
So Dr. Dean Urick of the University School of Public Health said it was implausible, that means it's not plausible, that vaccination was having the mortality rate amongst flu victims. I mean, it, it wasn't plausible. Researchers suggested previous studies had not considered sufficiently that vaccinated patients who survived were probably healthier and better, better able to combat flu-like complications than unvaccinated ones who died. It was difficult to prove the so-called healthy user effect, they said. Now, here's, here's the other part. Um, to Dr. Sumit Mujimdar, Associate Professor in the University's Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry, said it is seen in what doctors often refer to as their good patients. Good patients. They are well informed about their health and look after themselves and quite religiously get vaccinated each year so as to stay healthy. We see that also from a different socioeconomic class. He advised those with respiratory or immune diseases to still get vaccinated, along with those taking care of the elderly. And then here's a Department of Health spokesman coming out with the old slogan again. Studies show flu vaccines give about 70 to 80% protection against flu infection. That's why it's recommended to get those aged over 65 and those in the at-risk group. But Dr. Mujumdar advised people with respiratory or immune disease to still get vaccinated along with those taking care of elderly people. See, here, here you are with your total confusion, which tells you, you see, they themselves are very confused. But when I scroll down here, it says in November, here's the really telling part, in November, the, the jab, the inoculation's co-inventor, Australian biochemist Dr. Graham Laver, told the Daily Mail the jab did not guarantee protection. He said, I've never been very impressed with its efficacy. It is better than nothing. And I wouldn't want to advise people not to take it, but you can't rely on it doing, you cannot rely on it doing any good. <laughs> this is the guy who helped invent it. He said, it's better than nothing. <laughs> it's like, it's like it's like crossing yourself or something for protection. But you can't rely on it doing any good, is it? A UK Health Protection Agency study also suggested that flu jabs did not reduce hospital admissions from respiratory infections. Plans to extend the flu jab project uh, program to adults aged 50 to 65 and children under the age of 2 were given the thumbs down by three-quarters of general practitioners polled earlier this year. So there you go. The guy who helps invent the thing pretty well says it's useless. Uh, but the slogan, you see, slogans are, are, are very effective. Lenin said that. It says, we shall win this war by the use of slogans. And you must repeat things a minimum of eight times they found out in marketing for the people to depart it automatically without thinking. And that's why they keep repeating things over and over. And it certainly worked on these health officials at the top, the ones who are pushing it, and they give you the same 70 to 80% um, protection rate, and they've got no facts to back it up when you ask them. And even the inventor tells you the thing's pretty well useless. So, but don't stop there, you see. This is, this is my point. Don't stop at that. Because I don't believe people at the top are that stupid. I really don't. And I've seen the effects of inoculations on people. And I've seen people come down with chronic diseases after various kinds of inoculations. Lifelong diseases, they can't get rid of them. And when you go into the old World Health Organizations and 
the depopulation, or I call it the depopulation department of the United Nations, they call it the Department of Population Control. When you go into their old talks, they talked about bringing down the population of the third world countries quickly. But for the West, they might bring down the West with long-term crippling, disabling diseases. That's my point. I don't think that any of this is by chance whatsoever. They're not that stupid. Believe me, at the very, very top, they're not stupid. But the, the debate that we're supposed to fall into, is it any good or is it very good? I go further and say, no, there's another reason. Back with more after this break. I'm Alan Watts, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. As I said before, what to go further than those facts, the dialectic as it's presented to us, but to go further and see what the real reasons would be for something to continue when study after study comes out showing the detrimental effects of various inoculations. And we cannot possibly take or discount the data we have constantly banged at us now, almost daily, there's too many people on the planet. We have to do something about it. We have to do something about it. Think about it. How would you, if you were one of these planners at the top, start coming off the people? Would you tell them you're doing it? Or would you simply go about it the old-fashioned way, doing it quietly? Silent weapons for quiet wars. And this certainly is a very sort of quiet war. Not so quiet now. They're, they're, they're stepping it up and telling us kind of openly there's too many people. And, and they don't like fertility much, do they? That's a major enemy as the sperm count plummets in the males of the Western world. They even boast about it in the newspapers every year from the United Nations and tell us how far down it's gone from the previous year. But they never say it's a crisis, do they? They never come out with why it's happening do they? Well, that's how they do it. They just go ahead and do it. And you're supposed to use your own perceptions and your own logic to come to the conclusions. Don't expect the media to do it for you. Their job is to to make things look very confusing, so you just give up even thinking about it. We have one caller already from Australia, so I'll take that now. He's on the line. Is it Alan in Australia? Oh, g'day, Alan. How, how, are how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, I just wanted to ask you a question uh, about the higher states of consciousness that are um, described by various mystics and gurus throughout the New Age and uh, Eastern philosophy and even the psychedelic movement. I was wondering if you could perhaps shed some light on uh, your thoughts on that as to the source of and nature of that experience. Well... I don't really go into the New Age because I know it's promoted. It's, it's been given the go-ahead to be promoted from the 60s onwards. And there's so many con men out there. And they tie it in again with saving Mother Earth and so on. It's all wrapped into, again, the program of eugenics and depopulation and, and, and putting nature above man. But all you can do in your lifetime is go by your, your, your own experience. No one else's experience. Because 
you are the microcosm. And the old mystics used to always tell people, you are the microcosm. And the first thing they do is join a group. They find out what's already gone before, what the, what the majority are into. If you do that, you're lost. You're being used. You're being used you, right away because only you can get experience. And if you try to get it through drugs or anything else, you'll never have an experience that will make sense to you. The experience that you have, even in ancient times, had, had to be logical. It had to bring you to a state of consciousness. Once it was over and gone, that consciousness stayed with you every single minute of every single day. You didn't have to take drugs or bend your ankles around your neck to get that experience back again or, or do shallow breathing until you create your acidosis in your bloodstream. Then you're okay. lightheaded. This is, so you, only your experiences matter. No one else's. And, and that's really what you used to call uh, the spiritual experience. And often the person wouldn't know why it hit them, why, why they had it. When they said, well, why am I different, etc., some occasionally went seeking, some were hermits. They literally isolated themselves from everyone else. And so they did a lot more thinking for themselves. That's the key to it. You will not get, you'll break through from the indoctrination that you have, and you have been indoctrinated from birth. You will not break through until you cut the world off and you start thinking for the first time for yourself and using your own perceptions and logic. But okay. Only then will you get to the answer for yourself, and that's all that matters. Okay, because as, as an experience, it's something that um, was heavily pushed during the 60s, during the whole psychedelic movement, yeah. and you had characters like Timothy Leary. And, oh, yeah, who uh, worked for the CIA, that's admitted now. Yeah, sure. And also guys like Richard Alpert, who later moved to India and found himself a guru and changed his name to Ram Das and then came back and, and started promoting the, the um, Indian philosophy or religion. That's right. So, um, so you're saying that it's a, it is... Even what they, they're describing it as, as a higher state of consciousness is a genuine experience. You, um, can, uh, you can create a, a, an atmosphere, even through basic crowd hypnosis, and give people experiences, but it's not a higher experience. It's different, and you might think it's higher for them, but it's not. It's simply a matter of almost remote control. It's quite easily done, and you, you create the setting um, uh, which you're, you're expecting to see that type of Eastern setting, the person who knows how to command in front of an audience, plus everyone who attends is already, they're, all, they're willing subjects, so they're easily hypnotized. The person who's hypnotized must believe in the master. Okay. So do you, do you think that um, techniques such as meditation and yoga are actually a form of hypnosis? Oh, they are. Hypnosis, in fact, you know, the Western world for a while taught the um, self-hypnosis um, to, to attain the same kind of experiences, the feelings relief or, or, or um, calmness that, that some experience through yoga. Okay. I hold um, on just and, and we'll go it after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, cutting through Matrix, and we're talking to Alan from Australia, who's talking about the various Eastern philosophies that were introduced into the into the Western world from the 60s onwards, pushed really by the Beatles, uh, Timothy O'Leary, which again itself is an Illuminati uh, name. I don't know if you realize that name itself is purely high Masonic and probably not, not real. But um, Blavatsky talked about the creation or, or the bringing together of, of the religion of India with Christianity to create a new world system, a new religion. And this has been pushed by the big boys who run the world, and Maurice Strong, who works for Rockefeller, and the United Nations, too, that pushes Baha'i and all the rest of it. This was set up a long time ago in the 1880s to bring it to fruition for today. And when you see such a majority of Western women running off to yoga classes, thinking it's all about exercises, and they haven't a clue of the origins of yoga and what its real intent is, until they go up to higher meditation, and what you're really doing is channeling. You're channeling entities. The whole idea of yoga was to bypass reincarnation so you won't have to come back again, but you take on the forms of all these different gods, which some other religions, including their own, will call demons too. That's quite something. You're into a religion big time. And when they start selling you philosophies and how to think and how to think about different things, a whole format of religion, well, you're in trouble if you don't realize you're in a religion. You're being indoctrinated and someone else is pulling your strings. This is a part of the global agenda. Now, Khrushchev, back in the, the 60s, was he set up a special team in the KGB, and their job was to go around the Western world monitoring to see if all of these, these gurus that were sent over from India and the New Age religion was taking off and how it, how it was affecting the culture and society because it was known at the time that they'd eventually blend with the Western world into this new world order, and they needed a new world religion to guide us all into it. And with it all comes, again, eugenics, and too many people, and saving Mother Earth, uh, forced sterilization, all that kind of stuff. That's what comes into all this eventually. All these roads lead to the same road. They all join together. And it's a, it's a road to hell honest with you, utter hell on earth as this agenda steamrolls forward. But you must have a pretty well stupefied population to control and take along that road and you do it by the creation of this particular New Age religion which is coupled with no rights or wrongs. It's moral relativism. Therefore, there's no right or wrong. Right and wrong is only a human judgment, good and bad. It's just a human judgment on events. They always say that something benefits from every act, even the bad acts. Therefore, nothing is technically ever wrong. They can start killing you off, and it won't be wrong either, and you won't, be, you won't even care about it, because it's, after all, it's moral relativity. That's how I've your just, mind is controlled, you see. Sorry, I've just got one more question for you, and, mm -hmm. uh, and then I'll, I'll let someone else have a crack. Um, you've, um, you've spoken before about the English language being a, a form of programming. Yeah. itself yeah. Um, so I was just wondering as, as far as the awakening process goes and if you can get past all the, all the media bombardment and, and all the propaganda and all the sort of new age sort of stuff you're still left with this language yeah. which you uh, used to think and you used to express yourself um, is that something that you somehow have to be able to go beyond to truly wake up 
you, you can you can go beyond it when you do know and if you're lucky enough to have it happen naturally from from birth onwards we can also think in pictures and sounds and so on uh, you have many other languages which we're taught not to even use in fact we're taught to ignore even intuition we're taught to ignore now and only go by what the experts give us as facts um, you, you everything really is a language on its own and when it all works together you can certainly overcome the spoken word the spoken word is the first con game and that's why the masons always talk in their lectures about how god spoke the world into existence he meant all reality the spoken word and it's the same thing with adam giving names to to all the animals and so on uh, i've said this often if you had a child and he asks what a tree is when he first sees a tree what is that and you see a tree he'll say tree and, and that's the last time he'll ever think about it the best answer is to say what do you think it is and simply listen to a ramble you'll ramble on but that's the natural way to do something yeah, everything is already created for us to to follow and that's the trap that we're into language just like a computer and they knew this many years ago that we, we are basically computers in an extent in the conscious world and the programmer who knows the language and the logic of that computer will know what the answer to a problem is before it's fed into that computer we are the same and that's how they use propaganda on the public today we're fed streams of information we process it in the way it's presented to us and we will come out with the expected answer which the guys at the top knew would have to arrive at so that is the the, the way that it works it's plain and simple so, I mean, when you've when you've had a lifetime of, of thinking and speaking or, or communicating using language, how do you how do you break that? How do you how can you go beyond it? I think really the, the best way is to understand really what we're saying. We don't really. Uh, it's so full of. of um, I hate to even use the word uh, Masonic because Masonic is a later organization of a much earlier organization. Uh, that understood the, the creation of languages down through the ages and you, you'll find every culture too is given a specific type of language for the purpose of that culture um, I've had people from major major think tanks who work for this new world order who, who've discussed people like the Chinese and how their language was formed and for what kind of personality is formed for for their purpose they're a mass man type of people who are very obedient to the system the individuality is frowned upon and they're given a specific language which reinforces that all of that the english language was created to keep to get a, a practical working and war-based people um on the go uh, old english prior to bacon and d and others really was a form of, of Germanic uh, Saxon type of, of language. If you look at the writings of Chaucer, uh, the, the real writings, not the updated ones, there's many updated versions, but look at the original ones, most people wouldn't even understand it today because it's closer to German than any other tongue. And in the 1500s, uh, with Shakespeare and the King James Bible at the same time for Britain, they introduced thousands upon thousands of new words which became the English language and they were taught at the universities to make sure uh, that they'd go out into the populace and spread it all the ministers were taught it and so on and teachers so that's how the language was done and at the same time they're upgrading the German language in a similar way 
through Luther and they created higher German from his uh, rendition of the Bible. So they did this across Europe at the same time. Uh, even France had uh, changes. The, the, the French in Quebec is more 1500s-based uh, language and it's different from the updated later um, French from France. So this was a major organized effort by those who already run the ancient world, or, or at least Europe, uh, to change them and, and create a society for their functions for each one of them. Okay. Oh, well, thanks for that, Alan. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks and, for uh, calling. Yeah, thanks very much. Take care now. Yeah. yeah it's a deep Bye-bye. subject, and it's very, it's very extensive. And I could certainly ramble on for a long, long time on language and even teach uh, the inner meanings of language as well, but I don't really have time now at the stage we're at in this world at the moment. And that's why I'm on the air trying to get it at least out to people and get them indignant about the basic things, the very basic things which are happening to them today. Yeah. So, so with, with the language, um, in, in your first book, you, you offer a few keys on how to decipher a lot of words that we use nowadays. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, that, so that's really good. So is it when, you, when you're saying to really understand what we're saying, uh, is, is, is it that sort of um, analytical process that you're talking about? You have to. I mean, even Timothy Leary is time of the Leary. That's what okay. it means. A Leary is the man who lit the flame on the gas lampposts in London before the electricity came in. Yeah. That's what a Leary is. And his job was to go out into the world and, and promulgate the beauty of getting yourself bombed out your mind with LSD. And he worked and has been declassified for the CIA. The CIA were the ones who promoted the drug use and so on uh, throughout the Western world. And this was all to get the children, the youngsters, separated from their parents, uh, which is very, very effective. That was part of the program, along with the bringing in, again, the Beatles too, were told to go over to India and start promoting uh, the Hindu philosophies. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I've, um, and I noticed with a, with a lot of bands today, they're actually getting a lot darker and more more kind of occultic, um, kind of the the same sort of same sort of thing that I guess the Beatles were doing, turning people on to, to Eastern philosophy and and uh, meditation, yoga, that sort of thing. But uh, there seems to be uh, there's a few bands around today that are really pushing uh, the the ideas and the work of Aleister Crowley. Oh yeah, well Aleister Crowley again worked for MI5 and MI6 yeah. and. and um and that's been announced now by Britain as well. They kept it quiet for years. Okay, because I know he claimed to, to do so from the beginning. Yes, there's no doubt about it. I mean, even during uh, the, the, the World War, uh, he was over in Germany being a propagandist for Germany, and after the war he wasn't imprisoned. You know? Yeah. Uh, he was allowed to come back into Britain and carry on with his life and, and, and run the OTO. And then he set up Parsons in the United States, who started off the Rocket Research Foundation, which became NASA. And he set off another couple of branches of Freemasonry in the United States to do with NASA even. So these guys are all connected. And you'll find that, that uh, guys like Crowley, etc., literally work for the intelligence agency. I've met some people, to, even in Canada, who work for the federal government, who... Um, Promote the new age. Their job is to go around and promote the new age. I've personally met them. Yeah. yeah. You've mentioned before that the OTO was, was uh, responsible for culture creation. There's a, a branch of Freemasonry that was uh, given that task. Of getting um, the youth. It was to get the youth into this new way of thinking, yeah. 
do do you uh, do you know of any perhaps musicians or artists that that are actually uh, members of that organisation? Yeah, I certainly do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I've, I've heard rumours uh, that uh, David Bowie is a member, and certainly some of his early stuff. He does sing about the Golden Dawn and and Alistair Crowley, um, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. and then uh, modern modern day bands. Uh, there's a band called Tool who openly admit to uh, being part of the OTO. Yeah. So there's yeah. a few of them out there. And, uh, oh, yeah, and, and even the big poets. See, it's not just that it's anyone who affects your mentality, your mind takes you off into dreamland, even into meditation, and even novelists and, and poets. Uh, I, think, I think it was Eliot that, that was, um, or maybe Yeats, it was Eliot or Yeats, but, but one of them was the head of the Golden Dawn for years. Yeah, I think that was W.B. Yeats. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you know, these characters, uh, this is still the same today. And I have books here now that are just coming out with uh, stuff on the whole culture creation industry. And pretty well every novelist and every major poet even and artist um, was a member of, of uh, getting member at least of, of organizations being run by the CIA that's now declassified. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay. and they're still answered. They haven't given up. I mean, they're guiding us into the next phase. Sure. Sure. Okay. okay. Thanks, right. for Thanks a lot for your time, Alan. Thanks for calling. Okay, bye-bye. Now we've got Maggie in Texas here. Are you there, Maggie? Oh, hello, Alan. These hello. Last... Hi. Um, these last 15 or 20 minutes have been so interesting that I, I almost hesitate to go back to my original question, the question I had in mind. But you were talking about vaccines, yeah. And uh, I wanted your opinion on a subject that is uh, closely related to vaccines, namely uh, the forced fluoridation of water. Yeah. Now, it's obvious why physicians, even, you know, little everyday ordinary uh, physicians would be interested in promoting vaccines because they make money off of it. It may even be their bread and butter, but I would like to know why it is that dentists are so eager to push the fluoridation of water <clears throat> because they make they make no direct uh, profit as far as i can tell on the uh, illnesses that are caused by fluoridation in the water and if they really believe it works as it claims to would that not actually take away from their practice since it seems to be that the bread and butter of dentistry is uh, filling teeth and uh, creating crowns. Yeah, but here's the thing too. Every every institution which is licensed is a politically correct institution mm-hmm. with its own mandate. And everybody who works for it and who is licensed knows what they want. Mm-hmm. They don't like number one dissent in any way at all. And in fact, the guy who initially pushed the fluoridation in Canada, the top dentist, uh, and got it through, uh, eventually turned 180 degrees, went against it when he found out all the results of, of what it was actually doing to people and, and came out and apologized to the public. Now, what happened to him and his job, I don't know. But I, I do know they do not tolerate dissent within their ranks. And that's the same with all institutes. That's the beauty of, of running a system where you license the people who work. You can, so, you can pull it so mm-hmm. easily. And the, doc, the dentists, who, who live like everybody else, they live, to, they live high on the hog and live to the extent of their income, um, they don't want to lose their, their, their jobs too. They also want to progress into higher institutions within their own categories 
and you won't get up there if you, if you go against uh, the politically correct dogma. Everyone knows what they want you to say, and, and most folk unfortunately go along with it. Okay, so, so you think it's that simple, that they actually do know and they're just keeping quiet for their own... Uh... They see the results. They see the, the, mm-hmm. the results of the accumulation of, of uh, fluoride in the mm-hmm. teeth itself. They get uh, dotted teeth. They get little speckled parts throughout mm-hmm. the teeth themselves. But mind you, it's good for business because it creates a brittleness within the teeth and the bones. We know that too. Mm-hmm. And it's great for, it's great for business. Uh, people will keep coming in to get uh, broken teeth fixed. Oh, it is. So that, that is really happening. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was wondering where I could find literature on that. I'd like to know more about it. A dental school, a medical school? Yeah, you, you, can, you can go into and, and you can find uh, the effects of fluoridation to do with, um, I can't remember the exact term they use when it becomes the speckled effect of yeah. the teeth. Well, fluorosis, that yeah. is considered cosmetic, and of course it's ugly as sin, so even mm-hmm. if it were only cosmetic, the fact that they accept that is, is outrageous. But, sure. Um, but what it does too, you see, what it does, because see, fluoride is the byproduct uh, product of aluminum. In fact, it's the waste product mm-hmm. of the aluminum industry. Oh, yeah. And so they dump their waste products on the public and sell it. It's, it's so beautiful. It, it'd be like you, instead of going to the bathroom, selling excreta to the public <laughs> and telling them it's good for them. That's, what they, that's how they treat us. I'm not yes. kidding you. I, I, uh, think of it, I think of it as the uh, um, analogous to the Tom Sawyer story in which he was punished by uh, being made to paint the fence and he got his friends not only to do it for him but to pay him for the privilege. That, that's right. That's what we're doing. Yeah, okay. Hold on. I'll come back after this break. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watts. I'm on Cutting Through the Matrix talking to Maggie from Texas on the fluoridation. Remember fluoridation too. Uh, the Bronfmans, the Bronfman family, you know, the guys who helped to run the racketeering stuff during the 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. and they became yep. very rich and famous. Uh, they owned Alcan Company, and that was a big aluminum company that, that really profited massively from this con game of dumping the, the, the waste stuff into the public, into their toothpaste, and everything else. So they're all the same characters are always involved down through time, you know, profiting off the misery of people and causing more in the process. But it's always a big con game. And whenever you get this aluminum buildup in bones or teeth, it becomes brittle within that core. Mm-hmm. And it's the same in teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because enamel itself is, is very, very strong and uniform. But when, you, when it's interspaced with this little mottling effect, you have the, you have the brittle parts in there, which makes it weak. And they do break, and it's good for business. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it also, of course, we know fluoridation makes people very placid. It drops the IQ of the population, and they're more manageable. And that's what tyrants of the past have noticed when they put it into the into the drinking water of the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yes, I've noticed there's been an explosion in cosmetic dentistry, and I wonder if um, a lot of that doesn't pertain to kind of covering up the effects of fluorosis. It's very possible, but the cosmetic industry has much more deeper things to... Again, I tell people you cannot be paranoid enough when you know the agenda, <laughs> because uh, I've, got, I've got articles here on the cosmetics and how 
there's so much of these various you know, estrogens, etc., and chemicals in the cosmetics mm-hmm. that the male fetuses, and this is from the British newspapers, the studies, mm-hmm. many studies that have been done recently, they find that male fetus between the age of 8 and 12 weeks will be severely um, attacked as far as their sexual uh, reproductive qualities go when they get older. They're tracing it down to these very, very um, uh, harmful chemicals in women's cosmetics. Oh, my God. And I don't think that's by mistake either. But when everything is detrimental to the public but falls in line with an agenda, uh, half the time it should fall, if it's by chance, it should fall and benefit the public. How come it always goes along with the agenda? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, Alan. Appreciate so thanks it. for calling. And it's Robert from Nevada. Are you there, Robert? Hello. Hello. Uh, using the next three years as a time frame I'm uh, concentrating on, uh, if you had a choice between uh, staying in the United States with a secure job and just hunkering down with some freeze-dried food or going to, say, the uh, rural Philippines, uh, which would you choose? It would depend where you're hunkering down in the U.S., I think. Um, any city is, is highly at risk. We know they're clamping down in cities. We know, too, they want to. And I've said that under a war scenario, you want to get rationing. You want to get migrations of refugees. We're seeing that in, in, in uh, New Orleans again. Uh, and I said years ago they want to move mass populations around as they do in a real war situation and get, getting us used to it. So if you're in a city, it's not the wisest place to be because those places are going to come under more strict control. You're helpless for your food, your water, and for everything that you need to live within a city. You have to move if you're in one. Do you think the next three years will be the time when everything happens? There's no doubt it's going to speed up to 2010, 2012. That's their own estimation from the Department of Defense. Thank you. Thanks for calling. From Hamish and myself in Ontario, Canada, I'm getting the wood in, mucho pronto. It's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.